episode 53 of the Glass of Joe podcast. First episode of July with PJ Glasser. I'm Joe Malpa. And why do I note that it's July? Because this is the month training camp starts. So what better way to kick off the month than with an NFL guest, Connor Rogers, the lead NFL draft analyst at Belize Report, somebody I know from my past getting to work with him through high school and up and through my early days of college. So great to have him on. So much to say about the upcoming rookie class, the rookie class that was just drafted. So much information in that brain of his to pick. Here's the interview. Excited to be joined today by Bleacher Report's lead NFL draft analyst, Connor Rogers. We appreciate you taking the time. Uh, please tell us you do indeed get some downtime this summer because I already see you're putting some draft breakdowns on Twitter. Take some time for yourself. Come on. I, I do. It's, you know, thank you. I'm glad that you, uh, you point that out because it's, you know, it's, it's crazy. I do this thing where I'm always like, okay, and like April, I'm locked in on the draft. And then May, I'll catch up and do people's shows and like try to, you know, just do other things. And, and fortunately, I got better at it as the years go on. I think this May, I did not watch any draft guys. I mean, once in a while, like here or there, I'll throw on like a quarterback and then I'll be like, okay, I can't, I can't do this right now. And then June, you start to get the feeling again, like, wow, I really missed this. And now that we're, you know, really coming into July, I have to admit, I, I have the doc going. I have a lot of players in it. I'm, I've cranked through the receivers for next year already uh, because it's a good class. I think it's when you find the exciting players, it makes it very easy to start this early. When you find the bad groups, it's a bit of a grind through it. So I've definitely enjoyed some of summer. It's been really fun. But I have to admit, I'm kind of ready for real football games to be played again already. Amen. I think we all are, especially with fans back in the equation. Now, the Colts yesterday announced they're 100%. They were the last domino to fall. So everybody's back to normal, and it's exciting to see. Um, before we get into the football, seven years ago, a high school sophomore by the name of Joe Malpa started writing for a New York Jets blog called Turn on the Jets, and a man by the name of Connor Rogers was one of the feature writers on staff. Uh, now I get to introduce you like I did with the title of Bleacher Report's lead draft analyst. What took take us through the process of going from point A to point B Turn on the Jets to now Bleacher Report's lead draft analyst. Yeah, and I'll say it's point A to B to C to, you know, on and <laughs> on and on. It's a long road. But you know what? I have to say, like, it's, it's been uh, pretty smooth sailing for me. I, I, you know, came into this industry not expecting to work in sports. I went to uh, the University of Albany and went to business school there and came out and expected to work on more advertising, marketing. Always wanted to get into sports but and knew that you could find that through that avenue. And uh, turns out I had an opportunity, you know, through a couple of connections that Bleacher Report was looking for a, a basic research assistant, right? A very entry level, uh, bottom of the basement kind of role. And it was particularly in football. And as you know, Joe, I was writing for Turn on the Jets. And, you know, how I really carved out my niche with Turn on the Jets was doing the draft coverage there, which is, you know, great because it got me away from just talking about the Jets and more of something uh, from a national perspective in the NFL. And, and that led me to really knowing a lot about, you know, more teams than the Jets. So I took the role at Bleacher Report. I actually passed up on, on better money elsewhere. And, um, and I don't regret that at all because it, it led me to an avenue of, you know, a long commute. I used to commute six hours round trip a day because I just didn't have money to move down to the city yet. And, you know, inch by inch made my way down there. Um, worked my way through different producing roles at Bleacher Report and eventually started the Stick to Football podcast with Matt Miller uh, that was draft-centric at a time where there just were not a lot of draft shows, not a lot of year-round draft coverage. And, you know, we've, we've seen faces come and go at Bleacher Report, whether it's Chris Sims, whether it's Matt Miller, and it kind of let me go up a ladder to become the lead draft guy. And I think that 
you know, it's an interesting job because we don't do it like TV. And I think that was the most challenging part was we're not going to spend 20 minutes on a player and, you know, you get all the first round guys for a long time. And that's really it. We're going to do instant analysis with grades and reactions and go through picks, you know, at least through the first five rounds and a lot of things like that. And I think that's what makes our coverage very different from TV. And there's good, there's a lot of good about both of them, but I'm very fortunate to be put into that role. Uh, It was fun to get the lead role this year and, and we'll see where that goes. But, you know, I've been doing People always ask me like how long I've been doing this. So I graduated college in 2014 and I was not a draft analyst when I got out of college. I can't, emphasize that enough to young people it it took a couple years to really get on the radar and and do the work Uh, I would come home and do the work while eating dinner right that's the thing that like I had a day job to do a bleacher report that was not watching film all day every day I had times where I got to do that but that was you know that did not come first or second so I did this work on the side for a lot and all I could say is I'm really glad that I get to do it during my actual day job hours now Say it's worked out uh, pretty well for you. you. You watch a lot of football. So I'm interested during the season, during the whole draft process, what is a given week for you like? How much of your time are you devoted to watching the actual college games, to watching tape, to watching how the rookies are performing on Sunday? What does that look like for you? Yeah, it's a great question because it changes over the years. Obviously, the pandemic threw a wrench into my normal schedule. The bottom line is, while there are fans that want to know about the draft in July, August, September, the reality of the situation is the majority of fans are hoping their football team makes the playoffs, that they're not playing for a bad draft pick. And as the season wears on, you you pick up teams along the way, right? I've been doing this long enough where I remember the Octobers that you know, the Browns fans want to know about the draft. The Dolphins fans want to know about the draft. In more recent years, the Jets fans want to know about the draft. Jacksonville fans want to know about the draft. There's sometimes five weeks into the season now, but the reality of the situation is you're going to cover college football and you're going to cover the NFL and you're also going to mix the draft into that. So I think in non-pandemic years, you know, we were doing something called the tailgate tour with six football, where we were out there with fans in the atmosphere of, hey, we're coming to your college. Hey, we're coming to your NFL parking lot. And for me, that gave me two really, really great things is that one, we were getting to interact with our listeners and fans of the show. And two, when that time was up, I would go cover the game from a scout's perspective. I would get a media credential and I would go down to the field for warmups and then I'd go into the press box and watch the game. And I think that, you know, that that was the 2018 and 2019 seasons. And I got to go to a lot of places. I got to see LSU a couple of times. I got to see Alabama, Georgia, Washington. Uh, these schools that have prospects galore, quite frankly, you know, everywhere throughout Texas as well. And I think that, you know, that was cool to kind of get a taste of what it would like to actually do the road part of scouting. Now the COVID year hits and things flip upside down, right? I'm not going anywhere. We can't travel. There's no fans at games. And what that did for my week was, you know, in 2018, 2019, my typical weekly schedule was do stick to football Monday, Tuesday, Thursday evening, Friday morning, I'd get to Newark airport as early as I can fly out, you know, get dinner with everyone, stay the day, go to the game on Saturday, come home first flight Sunday morning. So I can get into my apartment in time to watch the NFL games. Then Sunday night, if you know, Sunday night football is on, but typically instead I would catch up on the college games I missed because I was at one college game while a lot are going on. So I'd go through as much tape as I can Sunday night and then basically do it all again. Now, it's fun. It's a lot of football. It's exhausting. Uh, you got to find times to, to eat and do laundry is what I like to say. And that was Wednesday. So, so that was my 
season schedule for two years. This year, not going anywhere. While I miss the traveling and I miss that aspect of it, it's way easier to be honest with you. Saturdays, I'm home. You can watch three college football games at a time, or, or you can catch up on more film because I'm not going to the airport on Friday morning. Instead, I could wake up and get through a couple games that I didn't get to see or rewatch some games. So this year was very rewarding in a way where it's, and it's tough to say that during a pandemic, right? It really is, but it was rewarding in a way where I got to rank 250 players. And I said, I felt pretty comfortable about 400, 450 guys where in a normal year, you're looking at 150 to 200, because quite frankly, I'm a one man show. I don't have an area scout everywhere. Me and Miller didn't do this together. We did this, you know, we did the show together and things coincided, but we each did our own evaluations and rankings. So, uh, that was pretty cool. And, and I'm very curious to see what this year brings. I don't, I think it'll be a little bit of both, right? I think I'll be home more than I usually was, but I am looking forward to getting back out on the road to some games. Now the million dollar question for every draft analyst, what was the pick that you most loved in this past year's draft? And then who was the team's draft that you loved the most? Wow. That's a good one. And we're so far removed from it now. It's like, you start to just look at rookie seasons in the next class instead. I think yeah. that, you know, the pick I love the most, I, I was really happy San Francisco took Trey Lance. I, I, I had a feel, and I'm, I'm not just saying this now, I really did have a feeling that that was going to be the pick. And I think when you look at it, though, you do wonder, like, why is everybody saying Mac Jones? And I think Lance can grow as a player, and I think the Niners can grow as a team. So I think when you look at mutually beneficial picks, that was one that really made a ton of sense. I look at somebody like JOK, Jeremiah Wusukarmoa going to the Browns in the second round. Uh, that's just really good value. I know there was some medical detections there, and that's why he fell, but I think he'll be a great player for them. So, no, I think Elijah Moore is going to do a lot of great things for the Jets' offense from pick 34. So I think, you know, this was one of those years where I felt like teams did a lot of good things. I liked the 49ers draft. I felt like they – they got starting level, you know, caliber talent across the board. I think the Lions did a really nice job as well. When you look at getting Penny Sewell where they got him, but then they beefed it up on day two and, and got two pieces for their defensive line, one in the pass rush mold, one in the run stopping mold. Uh, they got a wide receiver and I'm on Ross St. Brown very late as well. That could be a starter for them. And Jared Goff needs targets for that offense. So, but the Lions and the Niners did a really, really good job this year. Uh, there was a lot of teams that I looked at and felt like, they they got value with their team needs as well for at least two picks. So it's one of those years where I didn't come out of it hating a lot of drafts like you typically can. Uh, but those were the two that really stood out to me. Now, when the dust settles, who do you have pegged as the offensive and defensive rookies of the year this year? You know, before the Steelers offensive line has fallen apart in front of our <laughs> eyes, I thought Najee Harris at plus 800 was a bargain, right? And, and I really did just because the volume of carries and the volume of targets there in the pass game. Uh, it's gigantic. So I, I really liked Najee Harris, but I'm just getting down and down on the Steelers right now. I just wonder, our team's going to sell out against the run with Big Ben's arm kind of falling apart and their offensive line aging and falling apart as well. I know they got Trey Turner in there. Uh, Trey Turner had a really bad year last year. I know a lot of people aren't talking about that. The, the wheels have kind of fallen off the bus there. So hopefully he could bounce back. I, you know, if it's not going to be Najee Harris, you just look at the quarterbacks. I don't think it'll be Trevor Lawrence. I don't like his situation in Jacksonville. I don't think Justin Fields is going to start right away where it's him. Trey Lance is a bit of a wild card. Of course, Zach Wilson has a lot of weapons to work with. Uh, I think when you look at it, though, it's, you know, it would be Najee Harris and everyone else. It's not typically a wide receiver award. Kyle Pitts will get a lot of targets, so it can go a lot of different ways. But, you know, I'm going to stick with Najee, but you do have to have serious concerns there. And it was a bargain at plus 800 for a reason. And then it shot up to plus 500. So, 
uh, tells you that a lot of people threw some money on that. Defensively, this is a weird one because you're usually looking at production. That's how they judge it. I like Jalen Phillips a lot. I think he get. I think he's the pass rusher Miami needed. I think that that you could see eight to ten sacks there as a rookie. That would be really really exciting. Obviously, this pass rush class left a lot to be desired. There was no Chase Young. There was no Bosa brother at the top. But we kind of been spoiled over the years, even going back to Miles Garrett what the pass rushers have looked like at the top. I think Jalen Phillips has that talent, but there was medical questions and that's why he fell. So it wouldn't shock me. He probably is a little bit of an underdog, but I, I think Jalen Phillips could have a big year. Yeah. It might be a Homer pick. And I tried to separate Jets fandom to reality. I genuinely think Zach has a chance at it just because like you said, the weapons Absolutely. he's got, the offensive lineman he's got uh, PJ gave me some flack for it, but he came around to realizing that it's a possibility as well. Um, I, I think if, you know, I think if Fields or Lance were locks to start the full season, you'd feel really good about them. It's just, that's just too much of a wild card. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm not sold on Jacksonville. I, I'm not necessarily sold on the Jets being a powerhouse or anything like no. that. I just think that he has a lot of help now. The offensive line has really improved. They have a lot of good starting wide receivers. I think they're going to run the ball too much that that might take him out of the contention for it. But at the end of the day, this is a quarterback award, and it, there's just questions about every single guy. And same with Mac Jones with Cam Newton being in New England. Mm-hmm. Sticking with the Jets team here, anybody listening to us here can also listen to Connor with Joe Caparosa, who I mentioned earlier on their Badlands podcast covering the Jets. So, Connor, a Jets question. Uh, trying to view it as much through your job lens as possible as opposed to the Jets fan lens, which I know clouds my judgment all the time, too. Uh, just how transformative can this 2021 draft class be if Joe Douglas truly hit on all these guys? And, and I know I'm excited about it, just talking about it. So, Well, it's going to define them one way or another, right? You're either going to have a franchise quarterback or you're not. You're either going to have, you know, a big trade for Elijah Vera Tucker payoff into an all-pro caliber guard or, or else everybody will think it's an overpay. Uh, you know, you probably got a committee running back in Michael Carter that can kind of be your Devonta Freeman, what he was for two to three years in Atlanta. And then, you know, Elijah Moore might be the biggest wild card of all, because if he turns into a number one wide receiver, he reminds me of Brandon Cooks, uh, then, you know, that's a powerhouse class. So I I was a fan of it. I really was. I I know I had ABT at 13th overall, Elijah Moore 29th overall, and they got those guys at the right value. I think I liked Zach a lot. I had him as the third overall player, only behind Trevor Lawrence and Penny Sewell. I think this is the right offense for him. I thought they made some questionable moves on day three, but it's day three. You're throwing darts at that point. I didn't really like any of the corners. Uh, I think Nasrul Dean and Sherwood can find a role as sub-package players and really good special teams guys in college as well. So this, t- I mean, you know this, Joe. This is a team that needed offense in the worst way, oh, yeah. and I think they went out and got it. I really do. I think that this will define Joe Douglas in a good way. I think they're, you know, they, this team has question marks uh, in the secondary. Mackay Becton's health, the rookie quarterback, and you, young, very young staff. But I think this, we'll look back on this draft class, and I think it's one of the, the best ones we've seen in Jets history in the last 10 years or so, where there's been, they've been one-player classes at best. I think they'll get three starters out of this one. Now, the Ravens are my team, Connor. I have to ask you a question. Um, Ozzie Newsom is just one of the best GMs that football's had. Eric DaCosta yeah. has looked like he's going to be a pretty good one. The one thing that Ozzie could never do is draft the wide receiver position. He could hit on every position – but that's the one he could never get. Do you think Rashad Bateman is finally the guy that this Ravens organization under Eric DaCosta, do you think they've they've got a good one? I do. I thought he was a top 20 player. I think I liked him more than a lot of other people. And I thought the gap, you know, I thought Chase was kind of in his own world, but I think when you get into the Waddle and Devontae Smiths, I thought Rashad Bateman was a lot closer to them than the other way around. Right. And it's weird how that narrative 
Uh, and he went at the end of the first round. So I don't know if it's a narrative. It was what the consensus thought. I, I was not with the consensus. I, I love the player. I thought the quarterback play, you know, for the Gophers left a lot to be desired for him and his targets. I, I like his run after catch. Gets off the line of scrimmage really well. Tracks the ball really well. Not afraid to go through traffic. He plays bigger uh, than his size. I, I saw some traits there that reminded me of Keenan Allen, right? A guy that knows how to get open and find the football. And and when you could do those two things at the college level consistently, they typically are going to translate to the NFL level with wide receivers. And you've seen it with the Ravens. They've taken a lot of guys that, you know, could run, but didn't know how to play the position necessarily. And I think with Bateman, it's the opposite. I, I don't think he's slow, but I don't think his calling card is speed. I think his calling card is understanding how to play the, uh, you know, the nuance of the position. So I like the pick a lot. It was one that made a ton of sense. He works his way back to the football really well. Lamar Jackson's going to get outside the pocket and extend plays. I don't think Lamar's had that kind of guy where it's, you know, oh, I know I can rely on this guy when things break down. And I'm, I'm you know, in the five, six, seven second range rather than the three-step drop and the ball needs to get out, which you could do as well. So I, I like it a lot. I really do. I like the Ravens draft. And I typically do uh, because, like you said, you know, Ozzy – for so many years there and still the culture and a scouting process that works. And there's a reason to cost waited in the wings so long when he could have taken other jobs. And, you know, he knew that he wanted to stay there and keep the train rolling. And I think they have the right scouts in that building. They always do. I, I think that they just always find a way to replace the talent they lost year after year. You see Matthew Don go out the door and it feels like in two to three years now, you know, they'll have somebody there that's, that's replaced everything he's done. So uh, I, I think Rashad Bateman's going to be a really good player, honestly. Love hearing that. Um, as we look towards the upcoming NFL draft, a couple of uh, college questions from Joe and I. My first one for you, every draft class has that quarterback, whether it's Joe Burrow, Mac Jones, Zach Wilson, guys that were maybe going to go in the third, fourth, fifth round, and then they just have a breakout year and they rise all the way to the first round. As you look at the quarterback class for this upcoming year, who's that guy that people might not be talking about? Could be a day two, three guy as of now, but you see as a potential day one. I would say it's Matt Corral, honestly, and a lot of people are familiar with him because they watched Elijah Moore. I think Corral is not in the round one conversation right now for teams. And I think by the end of the year, you can see that trajectory, right? It, live arm, springy feet in the pocket, it understands how to keep the eyes downfield and, and keep the feet buzzing and navigate around. He, he knows where his tackles are going to be, the depth of their sets, and he understands where he can go to step up and make a throw. Anticipation throws, really good intermediate game really good athlete, plays with an edge. Uh, I love him. I really do. And I think a lot of people probably are looking at him and going, well, Elijah Moore was the best receiver from a stats standpoint in college football last year. And of course, an offense that featured him and are, are kind of overlooking that crowd made a lot of nice plays. So, you know, I'm not going to sit up here and give you Sam Howell, Malik Willis, guys that are in round one of every mock draft you're going to read this time of year, right? Or, you know, I mean, I could even go through the quarterbacks right now. And, like, you know, a guy like Keaton Slovis from USC had a down year after really such an impressive freshman year. But he's on everyone's radar. I think when you look at it, you know, JT Daniels at Georgia, Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati, a guy that could have declared and went day two this year is going back to try to get his name into round one. It's just it, this class has a lot of names. Spencer Rattler, uh, you know, a lot of people are putting him as the future number one overall pick. I'm not there yet either. Those are the names you're going to hear in the round one mock drafts. I haven't seen Corral there yet. And I think at the end of the year, he has all of the traits that Baker and Zach had that projected them from round three, four grades from teams going into the year and a couple more steps the right way. And you're looking at being a top 15 selection. 
I was actually going to take it that way next with the quarterbacks. The prevailing school of thought right now seems to be that 2022 isn't necessarily weaker because, like you said, some of these guys can rise, but it's a lot more uncertain than we've seen in the past. Uh, do you agree with that, or is it too early to tell? And then to piggyback off of that, is there any particular position group that really does stand out to you in the upcoming draft? I do agree with that. I, I've gotten through a lot of these players. Uh, the quarterback's a very preliminary watch here or there, just looking for traits, you know, not charting anyone or anything like that. And, you know, quite frankly, this time last year, I remember we released the top 15 on six football. And in the top 10, I had Trevor Lawrence, Trey Lance, and Justin Fields. And if we were doing that exercise right now, just off the top of my head, I, I wouldn't have a quarterback in there, I don't think. I, I just, nobody really stood out to me and said, if the draft was today, that was the exercise last year. It's like if the draft was today, we know Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Trey Lance could be franchise guys for the future. And there's not much they, they would have done last year that hurt that. These guys, like you said, Joe, they need to take the next step. They really, And I know people like Sam Howell, and he has a lot of standout performances and some good traits there, but not the upper tier elite traits that I saw out of those three last year. So I don't, I agree with you. It's not a bad quarterback class, but it's nothing like last year's, which I thought was phenomenal. Four first round grades. A guy like Mac Jones in the top of the second round for me. Of course, he goes 15th because that's how quarterback drafting works. But you can see the guy could play. Um, so, and then when you look at the class, you know, the class of it that's strong. I've seen a lot from the wide receivers early. I know this is a good corner class. I haven't gotten too deep into it yet besides the top two or three guys. But I, I know it's going to be a good corner class. But you look at the wide receivers there. You got a guy like Romeo Dobbs from Nevada, the speedster, Garrett Wilson and Chris Alave from Ohio State. Uh, it could be the top two receivers in this draft class. They play on the same team. Alave would have been a first rounder last year. You know, you just go through it. John Mechie's the next guy up for Alabama. Shocking. Alabama has a guy who probably be a first round wide receiver. You just look at it. Drake London at USC. I know his coach uh, compared him to Mike Evans. He's a big kind of target. Traylon Burks from Arkansas. Another guy, 6'3", 230. He's just, he really... It's just a tank out there. They find ways to get the ball in his hands. Uh, a little bit of that, you know, not this player comp, but you could see some of that Andre Johnson in his game where it's like catch and run and run through DVs because he's bigger than them. So I, I like this receiver class. Shocking. It's like year three in a row that it's a great wide receiver class. I, I know everybody keeps pointing back to these seven-on-seven seven camps that kids just want to go out and play wide receiver, and that's why you're seeing this talent. I don't know if that's the correlation. It very well might be but we're just spoiled every year by great wide receiver groups. Yeah, and yet the Green Bay Packers with a third historic receiver class in a row probably will take a backup fullback in the first round because they don't like Aaron Rodgers. Um, just one last one for me. Um, going into this year, are there any games that already stand out on the schedule? Like, I need to scout this game because there's just a ridiculous amount of talent Georgia on both Clemson's got to be. Yeah, I mean, you could do that every year with those teams because there's always guys on both sides of the ball. You know, it's funny. When we get closer to the season, I start to really outline those games because I wanted to, you know, write out, hey, what am I going to be watching on the big screen and put everything else down on the little screen. But right now I'm just trying to kind of make my list and make sure I know going into every game the numbers I need to watch. That's really what I use June and July for is that, okay, if I'm watching, you know, a, a team like Ohio State, I, I know Alave and Garrett Wilson are guys that I want to watch almost every week. And if I don't watch the Ohio State game live, I'll go back into my system and, and, and watch their snaps. And, you know, but who am I missing, right? Is there a left guard on that team that, that I should be watching? Is there, you know, a slot corner that's finally getting a chance to start that I should be watching? So this time of year is a really good time of year to kind of scale it back and, and look at those things and figure that out. And, and I've, you know, I've taken a peek at the schedule so far. And like you said, with Georgia Clemson, 
uh, it, we're, we're spoiled with really, really good matchups. And it, you don't have to look too, uh, too far to find at least one of those every week. Yeah, there's some good interconference matchups. Uh, Connor, we do rapid fire and trivia to end all our, uh, our interviews. Before that, though, one last question. I'm curious, what's the biggest challenge you find when you're scouting FCS guys, Division II guys, compared to guys in the SEC and the Big Ten? Because obviously the SEC, that tape, who they play against every week. So is the Senior Bowl, the Combine, is that essentially the Super Bowl for these FCS Division II guys? Good one. And, and you answered it a little bit is that you, the hardest part is projecting because you don't have the matchups there, right? Like if I can go out and watch Devonte Smith versus Derek Stingley, like, wow. Okay. A guy that's, you know, two guys that are going to go in the first round and you could just, you see it. It's very easy to see it. But when I'm watching, even like Trey Lance, like the traits with a quarterback are so evident that that never bothered me. But how about his, his left tackle and Dylan Radons, right? Like th- there's one where, you know, one pass rusher was going to be draftable that I saw him go against uh, the kid from uh, Northern Iowa. And, and it's, it's killing me that his name is escaping me right now, but that was the one time where it's like, okay, here's a draftable player, but you're projecting everything else. And like you said, you're going to get the senior bowl. So you're going to get one-on-ones against those guys. And that really, really helps a lot. I think the, the real biggest one that you can miss on is projecting athleticism, right? A guy can look really athletic on a field with bad athletes. And, and then he shows up to the combine or a pro day. And it's like, wow, the numbers are really, really mediocre. Or, or you just might miss something, right? Like you're like, there's just things you might miss. You might see a guy that just running away from the defense every time. And you're like, okay, who cares? And then he goes and runs a four, three. And you're like, Oh, he would have been running away from guys in the sec as well. So I think, you know, figuring out and projecting or, you know, figuring out athleticism and projecting what the player could be are are definitely the two toughest parts when you deal with that kind of scouting. Um, All right. So we got the swift seven for you. And then we got a trivia question. So seven rapid fire questions. First one for you, ranking the college football rivalries, one, two, and three, the iron bowl, Ohio state, Michigan, and Texas, Oklahoma. What would your rankings be? This is hard because Michigan has been like normally so for bad. me, this is this is a no brainer. Like it to me, I get the most excited about Michigan, Ohio State. And I think I think those fans do as well. I'll say I don't, this might be a hot take. I think the Iron Bowl is the best one in terms of competitiveness. Mm. And I know it skews one way, like a lot of these rivalries do. All right, maybe competitiveness isn't the right way. I think it's the one that I care the most about. Then I'd say Michigan, Ohio State. Ironically, I think Texas, Oklahoma is always the closest of those yeah. three. I don't really get that fired up for it because neither team ever makes an impact on the end of the right. college football season. Like Alabama and Auburn have won national titles, right? Sure. Ohio State, like Ohio State always matters. Oklahoma gets there, kind of shrug your shoulders. You know what to expect. Texas, I mean, let's be real. Like, come on. So <laughs> – and this is a it's a biased answer. I'm from the Northeast. I live in the Northeast. Uh, I've I've been to two of the three of those games for tailgates. Ironically, the one I said was number one. I have not been to an Iron Bowl. Um, I just think that it's by far the most important these days. I actually. What do you to, guys think? Well, it's funny. I went to Alabama. Yeah. So the Iron Bowl, okay. personally for me, is actually a little overrated. The one game I saw. Okay. I, 
my expectations were so high and it just didn't live up. Bama LSU to me is I'm, I've been I went to the last one at Tuscaloosa. The one I mean at Tiger Stadium at night to me that's that's pretty good. I, I can't see one. many I can't see many games beating that in college football. I've got Ohio State Michigan at one, even though it's so one sided. I still think that is just like just the game. Gus Johnson's always on that game. It's the I one agree. every year. But like, I just need Michigan to not suck again and make <laughs> I, it more interesting. I think it's the best rivalry of the three. Mm. I don't think it's the best game anymore. I didn't add Army so. Navy because that to me is just in a different, you know, that's and that's my favorite. Category. Yeah, and that's my before. favorite as well. Um, yep. Expanded playoff. Did you love it or did you hate it? Too many teams. Uh, too many teams. It's and it's only going to keep they're going to complain every year that more right. teams need to be in it and then you're going to start to negate and kill the regular season impact uh and they're already starting to do that so my there's a lot of ways to go about this right i think that if you go with eight you sit there and go okay well you're going to have like every power at power five winner which makes sense and then you could f- define what you want your three wild cards to be and if you go with six you could still do that and then you could get like a crying UCF in it if they go undefeated or whoever you want. And you can give the teams bye weeks because I also am not a fan of just running these guys into the ground right. before they go play. If you're also, you're risking a lot of things and college football does not care about this. So it's, I don't even, there's really no point of, you know, crying about it, but like if these guys are playing more games, then you're going to have worse talent at the senior bowl, or you're going to have more injuries or you're going to have bit worse football. I just think we're starting to oversaturate the college football playoff when we get into these extraordinary numbers. Uh, number three, for the upcoming season, are you taking Bama Clemson to win the title or the field? Ooh, I'll take Bama Clemson. I, I would love to take the field, but there's just no one that in the field that I'm sitting there and going, you know, of course, Ohio state's always in the mix. I'm not, I'm not naive to that, but I just, I, those two teams, I, I, if you're asking me right now, like Clemson should be a powerhouse. I mean, they really should. And the fact that I get Bama thrown into that, that's it for me. So would you take Clemson real quick? Do you think Clemson will win that week one game against Georgia? I do. Uh, I think it's a lot more interesting, though, than it typically would be. I think Georgia has – they always have a ton of talent, but I think it's really gelled well together, this group. I think there's some continuity there with Georgia that – might not always be there, although they usually they usually get guys to go back to school. Um, but I I don't know, man. Yeah, I think I DJ I think DJ is just going to be a monster on the oh, college football you. level, a monster. The fact people are not talking enough about what he did, what he was thrown <laughs> into last. It's because year. they can't say his name, they don't want to keep talking about it. They're going to keep messing I, up his name. I think so, and I think that when you're the guy taking over for Trevor Lawrence, it's like the hardest job in the world, and uh, man, I don't know. I just think people are not appreciating it enough. Yeah, DJ's. He's he's good. Um, number four, wh- who's your favorite draft, pros- draft prospect you've ever evaluated? Ooh, that's a great question. Wow, favorite I've ever evaluated. First that <sighs> comes to mind, the dude that you just fell in love with when you watched. It could be like a sixth, seventh round guy. Too. Carl, Carl Lawson. Uh, oh. Carl Lawson. Carl Lawson was one that, you know why? I'll tell you a quick story why. Because he's on the Carl Jets Lawson. now? <laughs> well, that, that helps. I am a fan of that. Uh, I loved Carl Lawson when he got to Auburn. And I was like, this, dude's gonna, this dude as a recruit just looks like a star in the making. And then 
he was great for Auburn and he was great in fourth quarters where you really could tell a lot about a pass rusher. And I remember having an argument with a guy that year um, that was a, a scouting, like a director. And, you know, it was just like, Oh, he's, he's not that good. And he's hurt. I know he had a, he had a medical red flag that year at the combine, which is why I went in the fourth round. And I was much younger at the time. And, and really I, I didn't factor in the injury and I kept him in the first round. And I've missed a lot on those guys over the years, right? Whether it's I missed an injury, I missed a character flag, and it's just, it's been some of my biggest misses along those lines. But with Carl, it was like, okay, he's much better than a fourth-round player. The medical flag has not really held him back a ton, and he just continues to surpass expectations over and over again. And he's, he, he was one of my favorite prospects I've ever evaluated, not from, like, item number one or anything like that, just from, like, a this guy's really good. He's been passed on for three rounds. And he just turned into a really good NFL player that got $15 million a year from the team that I grew up rooting for. There you go. Uh, number five, blank will be the best quarterback in the 2021 class. I think it'll be, I think it'll be Trevor Lawrence, which is a, such a boring answer, right? <laughs> but there is a real part like kicking me in the shin right now that think it'll be Trey Lance. And, and I said that, even after a season was canceled, I was like, if he puts everything together, he has the most, he has just as much talent as Trevor Lawrence, but we just don't know. I mean, he threw like 300 pass attempts in college at, at an FCS school. So, and he goes to the Niners, which is a great situation. So I think it'll be Trevor Lawrence, but I got to be honest, guys, I hate everything they've done around him. Oh, God, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't like Urban Meyer in the NFL level. I don't like their personnel staff from scouting. I, I don't like, their plan right now for Travis Etienne. I don't like their offensive line. I just, I don't like any of it. And he's a great prospect. And I think they, as a franchise, still have some big steps to take. Uh, number six, sporting event number one on your bucket list to attend. Wow. I uh, would definitely be going to the World Cup final. I was in Paris when France won the World Cup. Oh, wow. Just on, on vacation. And the energy of the city when they won the world cup was unlike anything I've ever experienced. So I can't imagine what it's like actually being at the world cup uh, when the game is played. So that would be, that would be number one. I've never, I, I do radio road for the super. Bowl. I've never gone to the game and I, it would be cool. It's not like, it's not really on my bucket list, which sounds crazy to say. I, I'm kind of shrugging the shoulders at the super bowl, but like, I genuinely enjoy watching the super bowl on TV. I genuinely enjoy watching football on TV. I can't express that enough to people like, being at the game is awesome, but I don't know. It's a great on-TV product. I've been to the World Series. Um, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Would love to go to the Stanley Cup if the Rangers specifically are ever back in it. So, I mean, the World Cup, though, to me is just, I don't know. It's it, from an international level, and I know the interest grows every year for the U.S., which is great. I think that would just be unlike anything else. Absolutely. Shot clock winding down here. We'll get it all in. Uh, number seven, and then the trivia question. You're a Jets, Mets, Rangers guy like me. A lot of misery, but gun to your head, which of those three teams lift the trophy first? The Mets. Yeah, they're just going in the right direction with an owner that'll spend money. The Mets scouting department has never had problems drafting talent. It's never been that way. They've drafted as good as anyone in the last 10 years of baseball. They don't spend money. The Wilpons should have been forced to sell the team years ago. Uh, I, I'm a, it's a, a very glass half full guy on the Mets right now. Same here. Uh, trivia question. The Jets have recently had quite the curse with second rounders. Now Denzel Mims, Elijah Moore, they might be the next coming of Chris Carter, Randy Moss, we might see. But besides that, it's been pretty dismal. Uh, three strikes, 90 seconds. Can you name 
at least five of the seven second round picks for the Jets from 2010 through 2019 in that decade. Well, Stephen Hill, an absolute, Hill. an absolute terrible one. Did you say 2010 to 2019? 2010. To Marcus 2019. Marcus May has been actually the only the good only one. good one. <laughs> yeah, the only good one of them all. Um, wow, there's been some really bad ones. It's like almost unbelievable how unforgettable they are. Of course, Hackenberg, the worst Hackenberg, one. That's three, two more. Yeah. Wow. This is like, it's so much pressure on you when you're doing it. Um, oh, Devin Smith. Another, Devin Smith. another, another really four. big miss. And you got a minute left. So you got plenty of time. Just Oh my God. Minute. I'm, I'm yeah. rushing way too much. Well, I got to go get my years right here. God, it's crazy how bad they've been in the second round. Did you say 2010? 2010 through 2019. Oh, Gino. Gino was 2012, but counts. Yeah, Vlad Dukas was 2010. Oh, Vlad Dukas. Oh, and, God. <laughs> and, and the other one you didn't say was Jason Morrow. <laughs> of course. Yes, and I actually thought he, would be, I thought he would break it. So uh, that, was a, that was a big miss by me. Jace was, didn't work out. Man, they've had some awful, awful. second-round picks. And two Elijah, of the years didn't have a Elijah pick because Moore's they traded for Darnold. <laughs> yes. It's like they surrendered on the second yeah. round. If Elijah Moore doesn't work out, the Jets need to just surrender every year. That's it. That's it. Well, Connor, we can't thank you enough for taking the time. We hope to do this as the season goes along and we get into that college football season in the draft season next year. Like I said earlier, it's been awesome to see where we've all ended up from turn on the Jets. Uh, so excited to see you this year in that lead role for Bleacher Report. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, anytime you guys need me, just hit me up. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks, do it. Thanks again. He is so, so busy and it's not even football season yet. He mentioned a couple of the guys there and I've seen – those guys already popping up on Connor Rogers' Twitter page. He's already doing breakdowns on them. I'm really excited to see what he does during the season, PJ, because if he's already putting this work in now, I can only imagine what it's going to look like, you know, middle of September when, as he mentioned, you know, fans of certain NFL teams become fans of him as the year goes along. When it's the end of September and, like, the Bears already stink and are turning the attention towards the draft, uh, and he's sitting here watching NFL games and college games. His Twitter feed is going to be just absurd. Oh, it'll be like so a CBS list. It'll be all the <laughs> way to the floor. It was interesting. Uh, you know, a draft analyst to me is always one of those jobs that sounds like it would be really cool. And then you like meet somebody who talks about it and you're like, boy, that's a, that's a, a lot tiring of job. And it's one of those things you could kind of hear him talking about it. Like he loves football but I'm sure there's a certain point in every season where he's like, it's just today. I kind of just don't want to watch football, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, but no, great dude. Knew a lot. Uh, thanks for him uh, for coming on the pod. It was interesting, Joe, to get his perspective though. When I asked him about the college football playoff expansion, cause he's not the only one who's sharing that kind of view. There are a lot of traditionalists who are like, all right, you expanded it to 12. It's only a matter of time before they expand it to 16 and 24. We were both in the camp of eight. We thought right. eight was a solid number. And I, I get the argument. You don't want to ruin the regular season. And Absolutely. you want to keep that because that's what makes college football what it is in the regular season. My thing has always been, though, the college football playoff has gotten to such a point where the media – has made every other postseason bowl game essentially meaningless. Exactly. If you're not in the college football playoff, if you're playing in the Fiesta Bowl or you're playing in the uh, the Peach Bowl, those games don't mean anything. So, you know, I think it's good that college football now has 
however many games it is when you put them all together are like eight, I guess, uh, that they have eight or whatever it is, meaningful games now. Now you'll have less kids sitting out because they're playing in meaningful right. games. So I think it's good for the sport. I can't wait to see it at 12 teams. I think it'll provide high drama. Then there's this argument of, well, now Clemson and Bama are going to make the playoff every single year. And I'm like, well, they're doing that already. So let's exactly. get more teams exactly. in there. Because, Joe, I was thinking about it. And, look, Bama played Notre Dame this past year. If they would have followed the format, if we would have had a 12-team playoff this year, Cincinnati-Georgia would have been the 8-9 game. And to me, a Bama-Georgia rematch would have been much more competitive than oh, Bama-Notre Dame. So 100%. I think – I think by allowing more teams in, you're actually going to get more competitive games. Maybe I was just going to go there. In the one-four matchup. I was just going to go there because think about which teams usually end up between like five and ten. It's the teams that are also elite, but right. they're in the same conference going up against Alabama and Clemson and losing games to those teams. And think about who ends up like three, four, five. It's teams like a Notre Dame, teams like, you know, maybe a one-off Oregon team because the Pac-12 is usually Washington, weaker. Right, that Washington, right. And they only get in there because of their conference and because they have the record, even though we know I test, they're not as good as a Georgia. So it's going to make it more competitive by having that uh, expansion and, and having that eight-seeded Georgia, as you mentioned, going through and, and playing up against a team like Alabama. That game would be 10 times better. Now, for me, like you said, I've always been at eight because you go back historically since the playoff became a thing and – that's where there's a stark drop-off usually, right? You think about all the years where you could debate about three or four teams getting into that fourth spot. After eight, that's where there's usually a big cutoff because now you're getting into teams that have three losses. There's usually about seven or eight teams that are either undefeated, one loss, or two losses, but they're good losses. Then there's a drop-off. So 12, yeah, you're probably going to get some three-loss lucky to be their team at 10, 11, or 12. That's just going to get slaughtered by whoever they go up against in the end. Um, now, granted, they wouldn't go up against an Alabama or a Clemson uh, because in a 12-team format, you're going to probably have the top four seeds having buys. Um, so they would be going up against, you know, 12 would be going up against five and 11 against six. So it wouldn't be a total bloodbath. Um, but again, you're, you're going to oversaturate a little bit. And to, to Connor's point, like, yeah, it's, it's extra games too, an extra chance for them to get hurt. But, all right, those teams are going to go play a meaningless bowl game anyway. Uh, how about play a meaningful game and maybe pull off an upset, maybe create that excitement. So I wanted a 12 is probably too much. But if your options are stay at four or go to 12, I'm picking go to 12. I don't think anybody would argue against that. If, no. if you're in favor of expansion, you're taking some expansion, even if it's a little bit too much, over none at all. Um, and especially now with, you know, finally the, the big ball dropping with name, image, and likeness, like it's going to be awesome to see what a lot of these players can do. Um, I know some of the logos have come out already, players with their personal branding. I don't know if you've seen Spencer Rattler's. Spencer Rattler's logo is phenomenal. It's like an S mixed with an R, and the S is a snake, like a rattlesnake. It's awesome. It. Yes. It's, it's that was great. very so good. There's going to be a lot of fun things. Well, it was funny, you know, on my Twitter line. So Bo Nix, the Auburn quarterback, signed a deal with uh, Milo's Sweet Tea. So there were a bunch of videos I saw today of Alabama fans going to their fridge and pouring out the Miller's sweet tea <laughs> in the sink. They're like, well, not drinking that anymore. But, uh, no, it's great. De'Ara King, I saw of Miami, 
signed a twenty thousand dollar deal. I can't remember what college punks hauling junk. That's, That's exactly what it was. was. <laughs> exactly. But look, they're they're taking advantage. Good for them. And it brought up interesting questions on Twitter that I saw, and I wanted to get your answer. Who were the college athletes that first came to mind if this were around that just would have made fortunes off of it? That's a great question. Before I get to it, before I forget about this other point that it ties into the playoff, it's going to be interesting to see now how how the recruiting landscape looks because certain colleges are probably going to provide better avenues to make money off name, image, and likeness. And also, um, you know, if you only had a four-team playoff, Teams, uh, players would gravitate towards those four schools because it's more endorsement opportunity. Now, if it's a 12-team playoff, that levels the playing field where a player, you know, might say to themselves, all right, I could go to Bama and make all this endorsement money and play in the playoff. But now, actually, you know what? I could go to Cincinnati and make pretty good endorsement money too and still be in the playoff every year. So it kind of levels the playing field going hand-in-hand with the name of anything like this. Now, to that question, um, I don't think there's any question about the two main guys that come to mind. Tim Tebow and Johnny Manziel would have just raked in the cash. Um, especially Johnny. They, yeah, especially Johnny. <laughs> His money sign. I mean, that alone. That alone. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he would have – you could have started having him do, like, Capital One commercials and stuff, oh, like any banking absolutely. commercial with the money symbol. Um, there's some, like, under-the-radar guys, too, that I think, like, could have just made some good money where, um, you know, if they had, like, a one-off really, you know, tremendous year – Take like a Joe Burrow. Like it was only one year, but think of how big he got in that one year, right? Where you could capitalize on just that rush to superstardom, even if it's a one-year thing. Um, there's a lot of guys, if you sit down and think about it, but Johnny Manziel and Tim Tebow come to mind as they would have just, I mean, they would have been able to, they would have been able to own NFL teams by now uh, if, if they <laughs> were able to make money in college off their name, image, like this. Those are two good ones. Uh, Reggie Bush's name was getting thrown out a oh, lot, yeah. and that's an easy pick. Uh, Vince Young, especially after he won the title oh, for Texas. Yeah. I mean, Vince could have made a fortune. Joe, I haven't heard anybody talk about this since the news came out about the name, image, and likeness, but uh, I, I wonder how much of this was why it got done because of the G League and what they can now offer college basketball players and making that money i wonder if now if the ncaa was like look they're going to take a lot of our top guys and this avenue allows them now to make not the money that they would be making in the g league but definitely some money and still allow them to play college basketball because a guy like zion i mean he could have just with his brand he could have made tons of money um jimmer for debt kemba walker Just some of those guys that come to mind of just dudes that took college basketball by storm and what they could have done. So that was the first thing that came to mind was I loved this for college basketball because now I think more players can benefit off it. The G League will still get some of some of their uh, guys, but I think not even the G League. Think about where the NBA is right now. The NBA is probably on the precipice of doing away with the one and done rule anyway. So now you're gonna get picking the NBA for the top tier talent is still probably going to be the way to go. Like a Zion without the one and done rule would have gone straight to the NBA, but you start looking down the board at at guys who are maybe projected out of high school to have been in that like six to 10 range. Maybe they still go to the NBA, but now at name image like this, you know, you probably can make as much money uh, or a good amount of money at Duke being the number one guy making money off your brand 
improving your play and then after freshman you're becoming the number one pick like that's going to become an avenue for guys right not everybody's going to be like a, like you said a zion where he could have been the number one pick coming out of high school there's going to be a lot of guys like um think of a kong Wu, or well i guess he went higher than we thought he was going to but all right last year just stick with that example everybody thought he might have gone to the wizards at nine or ten right so a guy like that who seems to be in that range uh maybe you do go to college, you have the opportunity to make money in college, you improve your draft stock, and then you go up. So I think it helps everybody involved in all aspects there. But it's a good point you bring up that everybody's focused on it for college football football, right now because football is a season that's coming up. But probably was basketball between the G League and between the NBA seemingly on the verge of taking away the one-and-done rule that probably helped push this through more than anything else. And Jay Billis, too. I mean, think of how – how much Jay Billis has really kind of campaigned for this. And for he's sure. a football guy, he's a basketball guy. So basketball really probably deserves a pat on the back and the thank you for, for letting this finally go through. Joe Burrow too. I don't know if you got a chance to see his tweet brought up a great point. I never thought about again, when we, when we saw this news drop, we think of all the big name guys, but now what this does for all the walk-ons who maybe had to work a part-time job to, you know, because obviously their sport consumes them so much this can give them some chances, too, to do certain things and, and stay and, on the team. And we're thinking about this in the national context. Think about it in the local context. I mean, think about a guy like Troy Fumagalli. You remember him, the tight end from, uh, from, from Wisconsin from a couple of years ago? Um, the fans loved him. I got a chance to go up to Wisconsin for a game with Maryland football while he was there. He was an idol to those fans. He's not going to be doing a national Gatorade commercial or something. It's not for that, but, you know – Think of in the context of the D.C. area, right? And, and a lot of our listeners will be able to relate to this. Those Paisanos commercials that have all the Washington football team's players in it, and they're so corny, those commercials. Guys like Troy Fumagalli can do that in Wisconsin for, like, the local, I don't know, cheese curd factory, right, where they're going to be able to do a lot of those because they're local stars. They're not national stars, but they can yeah. make a lot of money being local stars doing that. So it, it's great for – for all the people. You remember the Monmouth uh, bench, the basketball team, right? I mean, all those guys and they're different things they could. So no, it's a good point you bring up. Uh, All right. Going from college now to professional Stanley cup, final lightning in Canadians, Joe, it might be a sweep. I uh, might be a sweep. It could be, especially after, after last night, Montreal really couldn't have played much better than they did last night. And they made two giant mistakes and the lightning scored off both of them. I think they were out shooting Tampa like 27 to eight at one point. In the set. They were dominating. They were trailing one, nothing. And then they tied it one, one The lightning score goal with three tenths of a second left in the second period. Then Canadians have a terrible blunder defensively, give up a goal. I'm with you. This Tampa team, I, we've talked about it, how they essentially cheated the system. Yes. Their team is unfair, but uh, it's Canadians, you know, it's incredible that they made it this far. But uh, at a certain point, man, you just – Yeah. It's, you run into a buzzsaw, it's tough. They, we think back to the conversation we had with Joe Beninati before the NHL resumed in 2020, last year. And he said, when they get off the bus, they just, they're just looking like the best team. And they are. Yeah. Um, they, didn't, they weren't really tested too much until they played the Islanders. I mean, the Panthers got into a couple of scraps with them, but – they didn't really test them to the point where they would beat them. They went a lot easier through the Hurricanes than I thought they would. Same. The Islanders obviously took them seven tough series. But it never felt, to me at least, 
like the Lightning were going to lose that series. Like all the games the uh, the Lightning won, they soundly won, especially the eight nothing game. It took everything in the Islanders' fiber to even come up with those three wins, but they somehow did it and still had a chance at Game Seven. That was their first test, but outside of that, they haven't been tested. And you have to remember this Canadian team for as great of a run as they've been on. They are the last seeded team in the playoffs. There is a massive, massive disparity between the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Montreal Canadiens, a Lightning team that played most of the regular season with one hand tied behind their back because they held Samkos out and they held Kucherov out in order to be cap compliant. So as you mentioned before, like we said two weeks ago, they're literally cheating the system by playing with a roster that is $17 million over the salary cap. So that's the only reason they weren't the President's Trophy winners. And it's probably a good thing because the President's Trophy winner never goes on to win yeah, the Stanley Cup. Exactly. Um, but they were playing with one hand tied behind their back the whole season. And, you know, just like in, in, in Happy Gilmore, uh-oh, Happy learned how to putt. Like, they took the other hand behind the back. They got Kucherov and Stamkos back out there. Waltz through the first two rounds, tested by the Islanders. Such a talent disparity now with the Canadians. It genuinely might be a sweep. I hope it's not. I hope the Canadians could take at least one game because I really want the Lightning to win it on their home ice. Um, last year, obviously, winning it in the bubble. It's not a team that had a really long Stanley Cup drought. They won it in the early 2000s, but it would have been nice to see them. This core of guys that have been so close, they lost to the Blackhawks. They've been so close every year since then, now finally getting back to the Cup, winning it, not with their fans to enjoy it. I'd love to see them win it on their home ice and give the fans a chance to enjoy it with this core that is just tremendous. And, you know, for all the talk they had about maybe blowing it up after winning the Cup last year, but deciding to hold it together for one more run, I really want to see them win it in Game 5. And if I think, if off the top of my head, I'd have to go back and look. Um, I don't think we've had a team lift the Cup on home ice in – like seven years it's been a long time i have Black to, go back. Have, been the last I have to go back and look i think uh it's been a long time it's sense. off the top of my head the blues won in boston yep. uh, Caps the Caps won in obviously won in vegas the penguins both times won on the road in san jose and then in nashville so it's been a while it's been at least five years uh six years at least since somebody's won oh, at yeah, home i'd love to see them win at home uh, especially since we haven't seen a couple of at home in a while and given that they didn't get to celebrate it with their fans last year. So I hope it goes five at least and they win it in the fifth. It's a very good point. Um, now to the NBA, the Suns Hawks, the, the warm, uh, the warm weather teams, you have the lightning in Tampa with a lot of sunshine. You got the desert out in Phoenix. They're doing all right. And now the Hawks are favored tonight against uh, Milwaukee with Giannis out. So the matchup that you said you would most like, you would want to see, would be. I can't believe it. We're almost Suns there. Hawks. I can't either. Look, I thought the Clippers were the team of destiny. They were following the Caps line. They lost the first two at home in the first series. They got over the hump of the second round. They made it to the Western Conference Final, but uh, they needed Kawhi. Without Kawhi, they just they couldn't beat Phoenix. And credit to Chris Paul. You know, he I was wasn't, awesome last night. Since he came back from. Uh, from the COVID protocols, he really hasn't been himself. But last night, they don't win that game without him. He was great. You dropped 41 on the road against a team that got rid of you to make it to your first NBA Finals. It doesn't get better than that. The only thing that gets better than that is if he goes on to lift the trophy now in the Finals. But you can't write a better script uh, up until this point, at least. And we see what the last few lines of the script are in the coming weeks. But that was awesome to see. And like you said, I mean, 
last week we we ended episode 52 what is the nba finals matchup that you would most want to see not that you think will happen but that you most want to see and i said i don't really see suns hawks happening but i'd love to see and pj we're close we're close to seeing it. That'd be such a fun series. I really hope that turns this out. This has been my favorite NBA playoffs maybe ever. Because yeah. in the NBA, you know, there's usually not much parity. And we went into this postseason saying the potential. Brooklyn and L.A. was obviously the favorites. And that was my finals. It was tough for me to see those teams, if they didn't get injured, not making it. Obviously, injuries have happened to every team. It's opened the doors to everybody. And – uh Credit to the Suns. They've really been the survival of the fittest. They've been the team that hasn't been truly bothered by injuries. They ran through the West, and now they're going to have a chance to win the title. It's truly incredible that the Phoenix Suns are playing for the NBA Finals. And I don't want want people discrediting their run because you know people are going to do it. I mean, first round, Anthony Davis goes down. Second round, they play a Nuggets team that didn't have Jamal Murray. Third round, no Kawhi. So there are obviously holes you can poke in it. And, you know, who knows exactly how long Giannis is out. Perhaps if, if the Bucks come through, they might be playing a Bucks team without Giannis. So every single step of the way, they benefited. But, look, at the end of the day, that, that's out of their control. It's, it's not like they – like, You don't control who you play. You just have to beat them when they're in front of you. And it's not like it would be the first or the last time where teams benefit from injury. Even the Warriors, those great Warriors teams um, – yeah, they benefited from it benefited from the Cavs with uh with Kyrie and Kevin Love going down that next year I think it was if you remember when um Zaza Pachulia on that closeout foul Kawhi oh, rolled Kawhi, his ankle right? yeah. otherwise that was the most popular upset pick of that round was the Spurs upset in the Warriors there was the year uh, when Mike Conley got hurt against the Warriors so they benefited from it too it, it happens to everybody it's part of the game um it's unfortunate to see but you can't discredit the Suns, especially a team like I, I saw the stat. Mark Stein, I believe, tweeted it. Um, they're 70 something and 20 something since the bubble started last year, including bubble regular season and now the postseason. They're 70 something and 20 something. That's, That's remarkable. Insane. Yeah, really. Absolutely is. insane. So, who do you think wins, uh, Bucks Hawks? Who do you think wins that it's series? It's tough. It's tough because of Giannis. I mean, yep. I would have never guessed the Hawks win game four without Trey Young. Um, so I can't necessarily say the same that on the flip side for the Bucks. Like I want to say I can't see the Bucks winning without Giannis, but the Hawks just did it without Trey Young, and they've got Chris Middleton and the rest of those guys still. So they could absolutely win without Giannis. Um, being in Milwaukee, I don't really know that that has much of an impact because look how many big wins the Hawks have on the road in this postseason. Um, I, I I really don't know. I mean, the, the games in this series they've been up and down. You had a Haw- you had a Bucks blowout. You've had the Hawks controlling a couple games. It really depends on how the team can, the team meaning the Bucks, can adjust to not having Giannis in game five. Because if they can't, because he, the whole offense goes through him. Everything funnels through him. Uh, him going in on the drive opens things up outside for all the shooters. So if you take that out of the equation, what does it look like? So if they can't figure it out without him in game five, that might be a wrap. Because then you're going back to game six in Atlanta a chance to go to the finals for the Hawks on their home court. I don't know if they're losing that game. So I'd have to lean the Hawks just because we don't know with Giannis. But like I said, I wouldn't be stunned if the Bucks obviously come through without Giannis either because they do have so much talent elsewhere on that team. I think the Bucks are going to win this series. Um, 
there's been a trend in basketball, in college basketball, and in NBA. And it I know seems where you're like going whenever this, yeah. the star players gets injured, that team wins. And I don't, don't tell that to the teams is. in the playoffs this year, though, because the NBA teams in the playoffs this year that have lost stars have all lost. Well, not they've lost series, but like those next games. I mean, the Clippers okay. when Kawhi got hurt against the Jazz, they won that one. Trey Young, you mentioned, they won. Uh, they won that one in Game Four. I feel like there's some other ones, but it happened all the time in college basketball this past season. So I don't know. I'm, but see, what makes this one interesting is the fact that the Hawks obviously might not have Trey Young tonight. If they do, he won't obviously be 100%. Right. But uh, the Bucks, the Bucks know they need they need this game. They're, they're going to treat this like their game seven. I expect Middleton to play really, really well. Drew Holiday is going to have to play great. This will be a good game uh, tonight, but I think yeah. the Bucks win tonight, and I think they win the series. Wouldn't surprise me. And I, I just want to make a point here about LeBron, what he said that, you know, he predicted this at the beginning of the season, and he's not surprised seeing all the injuries. Um, I don't think that's, that's really a, a legit kind of case to be made here because you think about all the guys who have gotten hurt in this postseason, except for James Harden. James Harden is the only exception. All of the stars that have gotten hurt in this postseason – you could point to a collision or a, a fluky slip or fall that led to their injury directly. The only one that like came up with a soft tissue injury just by running the floor was James Harden. Trey Young stripped on a referee. Right. Anthony Davis crashed going to the basket. Giannis crashed falling from the basket. Kawhi was a knee to knee collision. Um, and you, you, you keep going to MB. Exactly. Everybody was a collision or a slip or fall. So, I get what he's saying, fatigue, so many games from last year spilling into this year, starting as early as they did around Christmas when the players didn't want to start until January. I get where he's coming from. And maybe in the regular season where we did see, you know, some soft tissue injuries to like the the calf for Kevin Durant and the hamstring for James Harden. Now those I didn't totally believe were fully injuries. I think they were just buying time until they got to the postseason. But you saw others across the league where you had those injuries. So maybe a case to be made for that in the regular season. But I think it's really circumstantial now to kind of like pound the chest and say, hey, I was right. Like, I get what he was saying for the regular season, but if you parse through it here, um, I'm not going to blame Adam Silver in the NBA for all these injuries because, again, every single one of the guys, except for James Harden, had a collision, a fall from the basket, or in Trey Young's case, flukily tripping over the referee's foot. So it, it's not – it's not the NBA's fault. I'm going to give Adam Silver some slack here because they're not injured because of the NBA condensing the season. Every single one had a specific instance that got them hurt. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, All right, over to baseball now. We had our buddy Ryan Warmly on uh, three weeks ago, I believe. And, uh, you know, we were talking about ways to fix baseball, how we could get more runs in the game. Well, Joe, all we needed to do was just get rid of the sicky stuff. That's it. Uh, Just – that's you it. Know, it was simple as that. Crack down on all the substances and uh, because balls are flying out of No your one's head. talking about the shift anymore. No one Kyle, is talking about the shift. Nobody's talking about the shift. shift. Kyle Schwarber hits a home run just about every at-bat. Uh, you know, Otani's up to almost 30 home runs. He's got about 28. Tatis is still hitting homers. Teams are just – it's double-digit games. Yeah. So uh, We well, said the pitchers have surpassed the hitters, and something needed to be done – to correct that. I thought it was moving the mound back. It was simply getting rid of the illegal substances they were using, which they shouldn't have been using in the first place anyway. That's all we needed. RPMs, and the data backs it up. RPMs on pitches are way, way down. 
and run scoring is way up. I was listening to Greeny's show today, and Hembo had a great stat. Um, two of the highest, two of the three highest scoring single days of the MLB season have happened in the last four nights. So, and besides that, scoring on average is up, and you had the two highest scoring days of the season uh, in the last four days. So, it, it, the numbers all add up. It was as simple as banning illegal substances that should not have been in the game anyway. Wow. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, well, a team that's scoring runs but are giving up more runs than they're scoring are the New York Yankees. They're, yeah. they're struggling. Um, are you worried about the Yankees at all? They're, they're still going to make the playoffs. but I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. Really? They're done. I think they're done, done. I think they're beyond salvation at this point. I, and it's crazy to say that, like, considering wow. how high we were on them before the season started, that, you know, we said if not now – never for this Yankees team winning a championship because the rest of the American league was seemed to be on the weaker side, but they're nine games out of the l- division lead in the AL East. Right. The yeah. They're not winning are, the East. The teams that are ahead of them. All right. The, the Red Sox are nine games up. Tampa is six games up on them. Toronto is a half game up on them. Looking at just those four teams and being that we are back to a normal MLB postseason with just the two wild cards. They're not even going to finish in the top three of their division. So mathematically, they can't make the wild card. And then you start expanding it and looking to the rest of the league. I mean, right now in the wild card standings, they're looking up at Toronto, the Mariners, the Indians, the A's, and the Tampa Bay Rays. They're not catching all those teams. They're not probably catching the teams in their division, I don't think. Uh, Their bullpen is trash. Their starting rotation has gone downhill after Kluber got hurt and after the sticky stuff has completely just undercut Garrett Cole's pitching abilities, it seems like, or all this Chapman has forgotten how to pitch ever since the sticky stuff. And then offensively, Brian Cashman built an all right-handed lineup. Power line. In the shortest porch to right field. How could you not have any lefties in Yankee Stadium? <laughs> so the team construction is brutal. I'm not going to fault Aaron Boone for it. Um, I mean, he's been dealt this hand and the players aren't playing and he was dealt a pretty crap hand. And ter- when you actually take a step back and look at it, they're done. I think they're genuinely done. Damn. I don't know if they'll, I don't know if they're so far gone as turning into sellers at the trade deadline, but maybe in the off season, there will be some serious conversations that need to be had about the future of Aaron judge, because you got a guy who can't play too many days in a row without taking a day off. I mean, this team badly needs to win games and he got a, an off day last night. Um, and now with a rain out today for the Yankees, I believe, I think that game got called already. He's off again, so I, I genuinely think they're done. I was not expecting that. I know they're five and a half games out. It's only July 1st. I, I think they're going to find a way to do it. Like, they got the Mariners in front of them. They're going to drop. They got the Indians in front of them. They're going to drop. That's Toronto, fine, but I don't see them. T- Toronto is only getting healthier and better. That's the thing. And Toronto Tampa is, is the not team. losing. Toronto's the team you gotta you got to worry about. And then – Oakland, I mean, Bob Melvin just always yeah. finds a way to – That's what I'm saying. You, you, in, an, in a vacuum, you think the Yankees should make it. But when you actually look at the landscape, there's no way, in my opinion, they're catching Tampa. I think that's out of the No, equation. I would agree. Give Tampa – Or Boston. Be, yeah. Between Tampa and Boston, one of those te- two teams wins the division, one of them gets a wild card. So now you're talking about the A's and the Blue Jays versus the Yankees. Well, you could talk about the Astros, too. I mean, the Astros are only a game up on Oakland, and you just got swept by the Orioles. Either or. One of those those two teams will fall to a wild card. So it's the Yankees versus the Blue Jays. 
versus the A's slash Astros. And I don't see them coming atop that three-team pile. I just don't see it happening. Man, I mean, if the Yankees – I wonder what the odds were on the Yankees to miss the playoffs in the beginning of the year. Those Probably astronomical. Those I mean. would have been juicy. But, uh, you know, when I asked you the question, I thought there was no way. But now that I'm looking at it, I can see where you're coming from. Because I agree, Tampa's in. Um, it, to me, it's about the AL West team. Whether it's Oakland or Houston, can you get one of those to fall? I think Cleveland, Seattle will get out of there. But – Toronto's a real issue because, like you said, they're getting healthy. Um, and, again, the Yankees against their division. They struggle against Boston. Terrible. I haven't beaten Boston at all this year. They always struggle with Tampa. Toronto's a team they go, like, 50-50 against, but right. now Toronto's getting healthy. So that's the real issue is they can't gain any ground in their division. And they're, I mean, their pitching was built like a deck of cards waiting for one slight breeze to blow it all over. Yeah. Severino hasn't come back. Kluber got hurt. Eric Cole's not the same without the sticky stuff. Montgomery's not great. Tyone was a gamble that didn't pay off. And the bullpen has been subpar at best, especially of late. So everything that seemed to be their strength has crumbled. Their bats have only done so well. Even their bats have been quiet at points this year. Um, I was listening to, to New York Radio today, and Michael Kay, Don LaGreca, Peter Rosenberg were talking about it. One of their biggest issues, too, is the fact that they refuse to play Stanton in the field ever. I mean, this is a guy who's played the outfield before and certainly can do it. Great on Because they're restricting him to the DH, it's limiting all of their lineup flexibility. Uh, so now instead of Aaron Judge being able to maybe just DH to take him off his feet in the field, he has to take a full off day. When Garrett Cole pitches, because he has Kyle Higashioka as his permanent catcher, Gary Sanchez has been their hottest bat. He comes out of the lineup. You can't even DH him because Stanton's a DH. So they just have – they're just very poorly constructed. I mean, it's, it's not Boone's fault. It's not really ownership's fault. They spent the money. It's, it's Brian Cashman's fault. He just did not construct the team well. And heads are going to roll after this season. I mean, Boone's probably – I mean, Boone is certainly gone if they don't make the playoffs. Cashman, yeah. he has a, a lot of built-up credibility with the Yankees, so he might survive it if he pivots in a way that the Steinbrenners – appreciate if, if they go a certain way that if he, if he starts going away that they like, but he's probably gone too. It's going to be a seismic shift in the Bronx. And I love it because you see, you see them crumbling besides the fact that I hate the Yankees, you see them crumbling while the Mets now have all this money and things are looking up for the Mets and players that want to sign in the New York market. Players are going to start picking the Mets over the Yankees. So I love it. Bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> right, look, you're, you're right. Um, all right, Joe, let's get to a sport you know a lot about, soccer, the Euros. Been watching a lot of uh, – I don't of know much soccer. about it if you look at my bracket, the way it's fallen. So. <laughs> look, it's nice that it comes on at, like, noon every day. So, you know, I, I watch it. But uh, we got – we're in the quarterfinals. We got eight teams left. Um. There's just one game, obviously, that sticks out above the rest. The, the, the three other games, you got clear, heavy favorites. So we'll start with Belgium and Italy. Um, what's crazy is that Italy's actually favored to win I could not game. believe that. Belgium's ranked as the number one team in the world. They haven't looked like it at times. Italy probably has been the most impressive team so far. But, yeah, Italy's favored, so... Does that almost scare you to the point where, like, what does Vegas know? Like, Italy's going to win this game? Or are you still rocking with Belgium, who has the best team in the world? I'm still rocking with Belgium. They're missing Kevin De Bruyne, which is a big loss. Eden Hazard being out isn't the biggest loss because 
he isn't the same player he was a couple years ago where he was a lock and the main mm-hmm. guy for Belgium World Cup 2018. His brother has surpassed him. He scored that great goal to win it uh, in the last game uh, to, to get to the quarterfinals. So uh, that, that's, again, that knocked Portugal out. So I don't think that's a big loss. De Bruyne is a big loss. But they have a really solid back line. And Thibaut Courtois is a really, really strong goalie. So I think they could kind of condense things and pluck a goal, whether it's from Oregon Hazard or Lukaku. Um, Yannick Carrasco will come into the starting lineup. They have enough talent, I think, to still power through Italy because I haven't been impressed by Italy. I mean, they're, everybody falls in love with Italy because of their past and their history. It, they're almost like, um, you know, the, the Cowboys or, mm. you know, you start looking at the college ranks, like whenever a Syracuse Bayheim team is in the tourney, like everybody flocks to them just right. because of their past. Um, you know, they see the four stars on the chest and two of those came before World War II. So, but they still fall for the mystique of Italy. And you look at their group, they had the weakest group by far. And all three of their games were at home in Rome. Because again, with this tournament, all the different sites throughout Europe, because they intended to celebrate the 60th anniversary last year, obviously got pushed to this year. So all their home games, all their group games were in Rome at home. And you get home games against bad teams. You beat up on them. Everybody thinks all of a sudden you're unbeatable. Then they go play Austria at a neutral site and should have lost. It was a razor thin VAR decision that took away an Austria goal at around the 65 minute mark. Otherwise Italy was losing that game in regulation. They go on to win it, of course, in extra time. So the first time they play a legit opponent on a neutral site, they should have lost. Um, and again, I Belgium is a much more talented team. So it stunned me that their favorite, I know the injuries come into account here. Um, I'd probably lean towards that game being a draw in 90 minutes and see what happens after that. But I think Belgium gets through. And even if Belgium doesn't get through, I don't think Italy makes for the final because going down the bracket then in the next game here with Spain, um, I think Spain doesn't have much trouble at all getting through their matchup. And Spain against Italy, Italy has tried to mirror themselves after Spain in terms of the style of play, it seems like but they're not going to be able to out Spain, Spain, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I see Spain winning that game by a goal or two. So uh, whoever comes out of that left side, I don't think it'll be Italy. It'll be Spain or Belgium. Um, picking between Belgium and Spain though is difficult because if Belgium beats Italy, I would have Belgium over Spain. If Italy beats Belgium, I'd have Spain over Italy. So to be determined on who I think comes out of that side now for the final, but, but I definitely see uh um, Spain coming through theirs, at least on that side of the bracket. That day of soccer where it was France and Switzerland and uh, Spain and who did Spain play? Uh, Croatia. Croatia. That was, that was my kind of soccer joke. Don't give me these 0-0 zero, zero games. Give me some <laughs> five threes, four threes. That'll never happen again. I mean, Man, loved that, it. That was, I mean, not even in terms of the goal total. I mean, just back-to-back games, both of them three to one. Yeah, because the team scored three unanswered goals after going down one nil early. And then the goals they conceded were in the last 15 minutes and the, the tying goal both times were in the 90th minute. Uh, that'll never happen again. Oh, it never was, happened. it was insane. That was awesome. Um, look, I, I don't know much. All I know is that my favorite bet for the quarterfinals is the draw in the 90 minutes between Ukraine and England. This has extra time and possibly PKs written all over it. You know everybody and their mother is going to be betting England. Everybody. I mean everybody. If there's a game 
that everybody anybody looks at and you're like, who's the biggest lock to make it to the semis? Everybody's saying England, 100%. So because of that, and because they finally got past big, bad Germany, who they've had so much problems with, and they know that the finals are at Wembley, they're so close. If they win this game, they get the winner of Denmark and Czech, and they'll be heavy favorites in that one too. I think they're going to win maybe in extra time or in, if it goes to penalties, then it's a real toss-up. But I think they'll win in extra time. But this has draw written all over it. I think Ukraine will keep it close. They'll keep it ugly. England, you know, they haven't really looked very impressive. You until about, Germany. Until, until Germany. Germany. You've talked about Italy. They drew with Scotland uh, in their first game. They beat Croatia. One nothing, and then um, you know in Germany they came out really flat in the first like 10-15 minutes. Then they woke up. Then in the second half they looked very good. But this game just has total. The only problem with it went all over. The only problem with that is it would have to be zero zero. I think uh, unless Ukraine gets a fluky like penalty or something where just a very very lucky break that goes their way because Ukraine is a very defensive team. And England hasn't given up a goal this tournament. So I don't see Ukraine just from the run of play scoring on England. So it just comes down to can they bend but not break for 90 minutes and go scoreless through 90? That's the only problem. I don't see that happening because there are some leaks at the back for Ukraine. Um, England might win it 1-0. They might win it 2-0. I think my bet for that game uh, one of the bets for soccer that I've liked for the zero tournament is um, is no, no is batches of score lines. Uh, so England to win one nothing, two nothing, or three nothing, yeah. that would be the one because uh, I don't think they'll give up a goal to Ukraine. I think they'll get. I think one nothing could be a popular pick because again, if Ukraine really hunkers down, England scores maybe later on in that game. But but in a game like that, if they score before the 80th minute, England. Like, if it's late, but it's before the 80th, as long as they've got 10 minutes at least with a one nothing lead, the way Ukraine's going to have to open up, they might get another. Uh, so that's why I would say 1-2 or 3 nothing instead of just betting 1-0. Um, or just pick England to win 2-0 as, as a bet. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from, just fading a massive public favorite, kind of oh, like yeah. France was against Switzerland. Oh, yeah. The difference, though, is Switzerland is actually a really solid team, and they don't get credit for it. Um, and again, you know, you asked me this question, uh, what would this be the equivalent to if it were the NCAA tournament? And you said, I think initially like you thought like 314, 314 or, or um, yeah, something in that neighborhood. And I told you, I don't think in a tournament like this, unless you get a really, really just massive disparity, which you can't really get in the euros because a lot of the European teams are good. You can get it in the world cup. Um, if you have a team that sneaks through, like, I don't know, like a Panama, maybe makes the World Cup from CONCACAF and they get an easy group and they go through and it's like, you know, France against Panama, you could have it. But France against Switzerland, France is ranked second in the world and they're obviously one of the best teams. Switzerland is 13th. It's not like Switzerland is really low down the totem pole. They're the 13th ranked team in the world um, and they have a lot of talent. So especially when penalties are possibly in the equation, uh, I told you it was more like a 7-10 upset, and the odds would suggest it was even like an 8-9 because the draw being in the equation changes the the way the odds are distributed right. in soccer versus basketball. But um, 
in eight nine matchup, you're usually going to have the favorite being like a minus one fifty favorite. France going into that game was only a minus one forty favorite to win in ninety, so it wasn't that big of a difference. Now the way they lost was crushing for them and for anybody involved. But uh, right. but yeah, I don't. I I think though there's a bigger gap between England and Ukraine. Oh, so yeah. I would Ukraine's feel plus eight hundred. Yeah, I would feel more comfortable going with the public side in this game than I would have in France, Switzerland, because Switzerland's such a disciplined defensive team and they have some dangerous potent attacking options. Um, and you speak to the group stage too. I mean, Ukraine only got through as the third place team um, and barely by the skin of their teeth on the last day of the group stage got through. So there's a much larger gap between England and Ukraine than there was between France and Switzerland. Uh, the formula for FIFA World Rankings is kind of crazy, and it's somewhat hard to figure out. Ukraine is ranked 24th uh, based on the point system. Realistically, I don't see them as a top 40 team in the world, and England on the point system is ranked 4th. That's probably about right for them. So it's a much larger gap than the, the france Switzerland game was. Gotcha. All now, right. the last one there, Czech Republic and Denmark. Everybody in the world is rooting for Denmark. Absolutely. Except for people from the Czech Republic. So, <laughs> hopefully Denmark goes through in that one. And they're the better team, and I think they will. That was one. I changed my bracket going into the knockout stage once the bracket was set and we had seen group stage matches. I should have never touched it. Never should have touched it. Now, my winner the whole time was France, so that was gone. Um, but I initially had England over Denmark in the semis. I changed that to Netherlands over Sweden. Um, and Sweden loses on a last second goal to Ukraine. Uh, England obviously continues on. Netherlands get eliminated by Czech Republic. So my bracket went to hell. And you know what? That's fine. Because it's been a great tournament and it's made up for not having it last year. So, um, All right. Last thing is uh, the other thing going on in, uh, in Europe. Wimbledon, pretty big tennis tournament. And the story with Wimbledon so far has been all the slips. We've had so many yeah. injuries. Sad oh, rain they've been getting. Serena had to forfeit because of her injury, so that's unfortunate. But Coco's still rolling over there. We got Federer and Djokovic playing. Um, do you think Djokovic wins Wimbledon? Do you think he can go three for three on the majors? It's tough to pick against him right now, the way he's played. Um, I mean, I'd love to say Federer, but like he hasn't really played a lot recently, so I, I don't really know how much faith you can have in him. And then you start looking at the draw, and, and it kind of goes a bit in Djokovic's favor. Uh, the two seed this time around, uh, who was the two seed? I'm trying to look Ed back. It was, okay, and then Zverev is, as the four seed. So he'll have to go through some younger, more inexperienced guys. Um, the three seed lost Djokovic. already. Sitsipas yep, lost three, the Tiafo. Exactly. I, was, I was just going there next. Tiafo, Maryland Pride. Math uh, the baby. Yep, he, he got the win. So with Tsitsipas out of that side of the draw already like it's opened up for Djokovic hard to pick against him he'll probably win it and I don't like that but you know what doesn't matter what I like when I hey it sets up a lot of drama for the U.S. Open where tickets will be like I saw tickets for like 700 bucks that's crazy and I hope Serena is okay because I know she already opted out of the Olympics Um, I hope she's all right for the U.S. Open she has plenty of time to recover hopefully it wasn't too serious of an injury it was probably one of those at least we hope that like she couldn't continue on that day or for the next week but like she'll be fine three weeks from now because, you know, obviously it's been a long time since she's won. And if she could do it at the U S open, which is basically her home um, with fans back at full capacity, that's going to be just an incredible atmosphere. So that's what I'm really rooting for 
for the U.S. Open. Some of the wind has been taken out of the sails for Wimbledon just because of the slips and, and Serena already having a withdrawal. Like, I legit thought she had a chance to win and, um, you know, but Djokovic probably there. The women's side, I have no clue. I mean, you go back at the list and look at, at all of the different women who have won since Serena last won her major. And I don't think maybe one person has repeated. I have to go back and look. But it's been like a different winner every single yeah, time. Probably Osaka. Would be yeah, oh yeah, yeah. As- aside, duh. Aside from Osaka, <laughs> aside from Osaka's couple, no- nobody else has repeated the champion. And so. obviously, she's not playing, so it's truly right. a, a free for all. Um, all right, Joe. Trivia time. You're still up by two, twenty-one to nineteen. I actually like my question a lot for you. And, and give it, me yours first. And it's tough, but uh, I'll give you. Um, I'll help you out a little bit with it. But my question is, so Mississippi State won the College World Series in baseball. Their right. first World Series title, but it was also their first title in any team sport, their first national championship. Wow. And ESPN put up a great stat that there are only two other Power Five schools that have never won a national championship in a team sport. So one team's in the ACC – one team is in the Big 12. Can you name okay. me the two teams that have never won a team national title? Okay, that's a good question. Um, okay. And this is men or women or Correct. just men? men Correct. Or women. And obviously it's not just football, baseball, and basketball. It can be swimming and softball and any team sport. Right. So go ahead. All right. So thinking down the teams in the Big 12 – um, Baylor obviously is one. Um, Kansas is obviously one. Um, Oklahoma is obviously one stuff. Oklahoma State has certainly won at least team wrestling titles or team softball titles. Um, TCU, a bookmark TCU. Texas is obviously one stuff. Texas Tech, is Texas Tech one stuff? Bookmark Texas Tech. West Virginia certainly won stuff. Iowa State has probably won something along the way. You got 50 seconds left. All right. Uh, in the Big 12, I'll say TCU. Not correct. No. Texas Tech. No. All right. Uh, then I'm going to go to the – you said a, uh, ACC? ACC. Yeah, it was the other one. Mm, that's tough. This is a good question. I really like this question. Yeah. I'm not going to get it. I, I was really shocked, like honestly, that uh, the ACC team I was surprised by, if that helps you. 25 seconds. All right. If it surprised you, I mean, think about the teams we know who have won in basketball. Uh, if it surprised you, though, it's got to be a big enough team to have been a surprise. Right. Virginia, Virginia Tech. Well done. There you go. Okay. You got 10 seconds left and one strike. So just 10 seconds left, one strike. The only other Big 12 school that I filed back in the, in the back of my mind was Iowa State. Iowa State is incorrect. It was actually okay. – there were two schools you didn't say out of the Big 12, West Virginia, and they, uh, they have won something. But it was the other one you did not say. Kansas State has never oh. won a team national title. I would have probably thought K-State might have somewhere along the way – in wrestling, because I know wrestling's big out there. Um, West Virginia, I know, is one stuff. Like I said, TCU, I can't think of what they would have wanted in. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you have it in front of you. I have no idea. I do not. Uh, I just yeah, know I no that clue. those two schools are the two left. Virginia Tech shocked me. I mean, to never, right. you know, I mean, and, I knew they, they never won one. Never yeah. football. Beamer got close. I think they went to the national title. 
Basketball, I knew they had never won. But uh, I don't know, like baseball or softball maybe or swimming, something. But they have never uh, – I'm curious. Let me me Google this real quick. You said it was uh, Kansas – I'm sorry, TCU National Championships. Let's see. Um, TCU – Oh, TCU actually has two national football titles. They are before World War II, but they have two. There you go. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I guess that's oh, one. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, uh, so good. Tr- so Mississippi State was one of the three, but now they have one. So Virginia Tech and Kansas State, and there's the only two left. I like that. That was a good mm-hmm. question. That's outside of the box, what we typically yeah. do. Yeah. Um, mine for you. One of the guys from each of our teams in the home run derby this year. Now, we'll, reminder to anybody who listens to us, which we hope that you know. You like us uh, and, and leave, a, leave, a, leave a review and subscribe, of course. But um, we are off next week. I'm on vacation. We might sneak an episode in there. We don't know, but probably not. Uh, we're probably off next week. Um, and then coming back after that, we will have a big, probably baseball and golf episode ahead of the Olympics. And, and as we get the into open. the summer yep. uh, with the Open and for baseball, kind of looking back on the first half of the season, looking to the trade deadline and the rest of the way um so that's when we come back but with that in mind that it's going to be a big episode for baseball the next time we're here and with trey mancini in the home run derby and with my pete alonzo in the home run derby thought of a home run derby trivia question uh give me the three people who have more than one home run derby title only three right. i know cespedes is one cespedes has two of them uh oh stanton josh hamilton I think Cal Ripken's one of them. Cal Ripken is not one of them. He does have a home run derby win, but he does not have multiple. multiple. One strike and you're only 20 seconds into it. Oh, man. Cespedes. Griffey? I don't know if Griffey did it twice. Josh Hamilton. Robinson Cano did it once. Um, hmm. I mean, this literally could be anybody. Tough. Good question. 40 seconds into it. Hmm. I'll go Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds is not one of them. He won in 1996, but that was the only one. Okay. And Which, uh, interestingly enough, was before the steroids. He actually didn't win it after the steroids. <laughs> interesting. So these guys all won it just twice. Nobody's ever done it three times. One guy's done it three times. Oh. Uh, the other guy's done it twice. Oh, okay. Cespedes did it twice. A minute into it. You got 30 seconds left and one strike to work with. I'll say Griffey. Griffey's the guy who did it three times. There you go. Okay. Wow. Uh, all right. Oh, last guy, man. I feel like it's somebody recent. I'll go, Josh, I'll go Josh Hamilton. Now, nah, just the Josh Hamilton. Actually, this is an interesting one. Oh, he never won he that. He never one. even won yeah. it. Yeah, I think Morneau won it or Mauer won Justin, it. Justin uh, Morneau won it that year because yeah. Josh Hamilton was gassed after he had that right. one crazy round. <laughs> um, but the other two-time winners around that era, Justin Morneau was 08. Uh, Prince Fielder won it in 2009 and 2012. Yeah. Prince Fielder. That's right. And Prince Fielder I, did it uh, at, at two rival stadiums. He did it for the Cardinals at Bush and then uh, at the Cardinal Stadium at Bush and then at the Royal Stadium at Kauffman. So he did it there. Good one. Good one. Yeah, I had a feeling it were – Cespedes I knew right away. And then I had a feeling it was it was somebody recently. Griffey was just like, I'm going to pick a home run if, guy. I, I absolutely knew Griffey because I knew he won it three times. I knew Cespedes because obviously I knew Cespedes for the Mets yeah. and he did it back-to-back years. Um, not with the Mets. He did it before he got to the Mets, but obviously after he got to the Mets, I knew of it. 
Uh, and then the one that would have taken me some time that if I would have missed, it would have also been Prince Fielder just because like he isn't really in our minds at the moment anymore. And uh, right. he's not, he's one of those tweener guys where like, he's not going to make the hall of fame. He was a fun guy while he lasted, but a forgettable guy. We're like 10, 15 years from now, like we're going to say, Oh yeah, yeah, I remember Prince Fielder, but like, he's not going to be the first guy that comes to our mind on a lot of things. You know what I'm right. saying? So yeah. uh, that's the one that I might've tripped me up as well. All right. Well, good job. You still got a 21 to 19 lead. Thanks again to Connor Rogers for joining us. I'm surprised at the beginning, you know, you said you knew it was July because of baseball all-star game and everything. It was Bobby Bonilla day today. That's, that's true. That's I true. thought for sure you were going to lead with that, but uh, <laughs> you did not. Hey, you know what? Everybody can make fun of the Mets for that. It was one of the best things that ever happened to the Mets because uh, with the deferred payment, it allowed them to go out and get Hampton, which helped get them to the 2000 World Series. And then after they let Hampton walk in free agency, it gave them a comp pick in the draft. And with that comp pick in the draft, they drafted David Wright, who obviously was the captain for so long and helped them get to the 2015 World Series. So by deferring the Bobby Mania money, we are the butt end of a lot of jokes. But we got two World Series appearances directly out of doing that. So worked for me. And what, I mean, how brilliant by Bobby, too, all these years to yeah. just lay it out And it like was that. brilliant by the Mets, too, at the time, before they realized the only reason they were making so much money was because of Bernie Madoff's illegal scheme. Uh, but it made business sense for the Mets, too. And now, I mean, it's, you know, we were talking about this yesterday. Um, I mean, the money that it cost Steve Cohen to pay by Benia, based on his net worth, if somebody's net worth was $10,000, it would be the equivalent of them paying 70 cents. So to somebody with a net worth of $10,000, 70 cents is the equivalent of what Steve Cohen just has to dish out five billion now every year. That's absurd. Must be nice. <laughs> That's absurd. Must be nice. Like you, you have 70 cents in your pocket. You drop it. You're not going to notice. Steve Cohen, by that math, would drop one point whatever million and not notice. That's crazy. And you know what? That's why the Mets are going to win a World Series in the next five years, according to Tim Kirchner. So that's good for me. God, he's got stupid money. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you need DeGrom to stay healthy, and hopefully he does. But Yeah, hey, we had this chat, too, before the season started. You, Worm, and I, where DeGrom ranks, is he that easily a Hall of Famer? I think this season has made him a no-question first ballot Hall of Famer. And depending on how it ends up, depending on how low that ERA is when it ends up, this season alone, if he is MVP and Cy Young, which he seems like he's going to be if he stays healthy, he's already putting his foot in the inner circle Hall of Fame. He's easily, he's the greatest pitcher I've ever seen. He's not the most accomplished. I'm glad you said that because not even being a homer, he has surpassed Kershaw for me. Oh, I mean, Joe, he throws a hundred, like it's a flick. And yeah. he drops a slider in there. Like he throws two pitches essentially. It, that's it. And he's gotten <laughs> he's gotten better with age. He throws two pitches. Uh, Hefner, the pitching coach for the Mets, straight up said, "Yeah, he has a curveball. I've seen it. It's disgusting. But he doesn't even need to use it because he has those two pitches. He'll throw a changeup now and then, but it's absurd. And I mean, think of last year. Like the only reason he didn't win the Cy Young was because." He had that one bad start in September and Trevor Bauer had an incredible start near the end of the season. So it skewed the numbers in such a short season. Um, So he's going to be the Cy Young winner in three consecutive full length seasons and had last year been a full length season. 
um, where Trevor Bauer also couldn't pitch against three of the worst teams in baseball exclusively the whole season long. DeGrom probably would be winning his fourth Cy Young in a row. And he's going to join a very elite, small group of guys. I think it's, it's Koufax, it's Kershaw, and I forgot who the third guy is this year of winning three Cy Youngs and an MVP award. Um, so, I mean, forget about the conversation we were having again before the season started of how secure his Hall of Fame spot is. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer, John. and he might be in that, you know, imaginary inner circle Hall of Fame already by the end of the season. Yeah, no, he's the best. I mean, he's not the most accomplished yet, but of like physical talent, who's the best baseball pitcher I've ever seen? I mean, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the accomplishments are coming, uh, obviously, all in yeah. a row now, too, you know. He was a late bloomer. He was a he was an older rookie, and he won Rookie of the Year. He's been top of the Cy Young ballot. Obviously, now going to win it a third time, get an MVP to go with that. Now, now that the team is also finally getting good, um, we'll finally see him pitch in October. The one time he's pitched in October, they made it to the World Series. I don't think that's a coincidence. So, uh, we'll see now what what he can do this year too. So. Good stuff. All right, Joe. Well, have fun uh, at the beach next week, pal. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Like I said before, uh, we may may not have an episode next week. We're probably recording an interview, but it'll probably be held to the following week. So stay tuned. So, hey, the thing that's going to determine this now, honestly, um, is there is a tropical storm that may impact our vacation next week. So if there's a day that I am locked in the hotel all day, we can record an episode. But there you go. Hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully not. That's true. All right. Until next time, for PJ Glasser, I'm Joe Malvin. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Glasser Joe Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. See you in hopefully two weeks.